On Point, hosted by Peter Van Artrike. Conversations with interesting and informative experts on technology, branding, culture, social media marketing, and other great topics. Hello again, everybody. I'm Peter Van Artrike, your host for On Point, brought to you by our good friends at Wells Media, which includes Carrier Management, Insurance Journal, and other fine publications. This episode is supported by PersonalUmbrella.com, where you can quote standalone personal umbrella policies of up to five million in three minutes online by answering just four simple questions. Our guest today is Brian Ahern, who's a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, and author of three books. His latest book is The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness. Uh, it's a business parable that follows the life of John Andrews, an ordinary person who becomes an extraordinary influencer as he learns from coaches, mentors, and clients. Welcome to On Point, Brian. Thank you for having me on, Peter. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I am too. Um, I, I love this topic of uh, getting into the, the psychology of uh, what makes people tick on the sales side, but also on the receiving end, the customer um, or the business partner. But let's, um, let's kick this off, if you would, Brian, first with uh, how, you're, how you originally intersected with the, you know, your career intersected with the insurance industry. Well, like most people, I did not grow up saying, I want to get into insurance. I, I fell into insurance really because of a girl. I was dating somebody here in Columbus, Ohio. And when I graduated from Miami University, accepted a job with the Travelers Insurance Companies, primarily because it was here in Columbus and I'd been dating her and friends and family were here too. The irony of it, Peter, was the very first day of work at the Travelers, I met my wife who I now been married to for 33 years. So sometimes things don't work out the way you think they're going to. But when I got into insurance, I, I quickly realized it's a great industry to be a part of, not only because everybody needs it, but really at the, at the core, I always felt like we do two things. At the end of the day, we help people. If they've had a loss, we try to help them get back on their feet. That's a good thing. And we help the economy by the guarantees that we make. And so loans are made, businesses started, things like that. So a wonderful industry to be in. And so I spent the entirety of my career on the corporate side in insurance. And I, I came across the work of Dr. Robert Cialdini in the early 2000s. And I was involved with sales training at State Auto Insurance. And right away when I saw his material, the light bulb came on, I realized the psychology that he talks about is the underpinning of all selling. I love the fact that it was all research-based. It was based on decades of research from social psychology and, and behavioral economics. And then I, I really appreciated his stance on ethics. And so for those three reasons, I really got behind utilizing his information in our sales training and sales coaching at State Auto. And ultimately, when I got certified by Robert Cialdini in 2008, I started working with independent agents as we morphed the psychology into a sales offering for the agents that represented the company. And uh, I just, I knew that this is what I would do with the rest of my career. And I made the, the jump three years ago. I left State Auto to pursue this full time because I'm so intrigued by it and how it can help people professionally and personally. Yeah, it's a, it's a great topic. Um, tell us a little more about this guy, Robert Cialdini. So Robert Cialdini was a social psychologist who worked out of Arizona State University for more than three decades. He's been retired for a while, but he still travels the world and speaks about the topic of the science of influence. And he really 
took a lot of information and pulled it together and synthesized it in a book that he put out in the mid 80s called Influence, Science and Practice. And since that time, that book in its iterations has sold something like 7 million copies. And he is really the gold standard when it comes to understanding the psychology of influence and persuasion. Almost every resource that you pick up will reference back to him in some way. And it was uh, really through luck that I ended up meeting Dr. Cialdini. I, I mentioned that he, I appreciated his stance on, on ethics. He talked about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. And one day I came across a marketing flyer from Stanford University and it was advertising his video that I had seen that kicked off everything for me. And they used the word manipulation right in the headline. And I felt so strongly about that that I emailed Stanford and I basically said, nobody's looking to be good, become a good manipulator. Uh, nobody wants to be manipulated. Using a word like that cannot be helping your sales, but it's probably really hurting. And oh, by the way, he's very clear about non-manipulative ways to do things. Well, I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang and it was Robert Cialdini's office calling to thank me because they said that email that I sent to Stanford caused them to change the marketing of all of his materials. And that really kicked off my relationship with him back in the early 2000s. Yeah, and manip manipulation, Brian, has such a, a negative context, even though I suppose it, it's, we're always being manipulated by marketers, by advertising and social media and that sort of thing. But it has a, that maybe it's the root word, M-A-N, you know, like a negative, uh, you're, you're, you're doing something that's not good for somebody. I think your philosophy is you can be ethical, you can get to yes, um, you can do things that are good. You talk about um, doing things that are good for both the buyer and the seller. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at the definition of the word manipulation, the, the definition actually is not bad. It's to skillfully work like uh, a carpenter could manipulate a piece of wood. But when you think about the context in human relations, the wood has no say. It is an inanimate object that's, that's being crafted however the, the carpenter wants to. Well, neither you or I or any of your listeners want to be crafted by somebody without any say in the process. So manipulation when it comes to human interaction is a completely negative word. But we can influence people in ways that are entirely above board and ethical and help people and they can feel good about that transaction. So that's what I aim for when I teach people about influences. How do we take all the psychology, put it into practice in a way that is mutually beneficial for you as well as the other person? Right, so how do you? <laughs> well, there's, there's three things that, that we look at as absolutes that you have to have if you want to be considered somebody who is ethically influencing another person. And the first thing is truthfulness. We always tell the truth, but it's not enough just to tell the truth. We never hide the truth. So, so for example, Peter, I'm recording this with you sitting in my home. If I were selling my home and you walked in and it was apparent that you liked my home, but there's a crack in the basement and I have a carpet over it because I have a, a gym in the basement. If you buy that house, move the carpet and see the crack and you come back and say, Brian, why didn't you tell me about the crack? If I say, well, Peter, you didn't ask, that's not defensible. You are not going to look at me as a, as a person who has ethical character. 
But what we learn when we learn about the psychology of, of influence is I can talk about shortcomings and actually gain credibility as an honest broker. So if I saw you walking around my house and I could clearly tell that you're falling in love with it, I might say, hey, Peter, um, I can tell you, you, it looks like you really like the house. And I want to be upfront with you. Come here. And we go downstairs and I show you my gym and I move the carpet and I say, I want to make sure you know there's a crack in the basement. It's never leaked. It's never been a problem, but I would not want you to buy the house unaware of that. You're probably at that point thinking this guy's an honest broker. And, and then you may still want to buy the house. So I don't, I don't just tell the truth. I don't hide the truth. So that's, that's the first thing that we need to do. The second thing is we only use psychology that's naturally available in the situation. So an example that people can relate to here, uh, scarcity. We all want things more if we think that they're rare or going away. And it's a very tired and worn out line when people tell you something like, well, Peter, if you agree today, we can save you 15%. But if I have to come back another day, I can't give you this discount they know that that's causing you to want to make a decision in the moment. But the reality is that discount they're offering is probably just as valid tomorrow, next week, or next month. So they're manipulating you using psychology. We never do that. We only use psychology that's natural to the situation. And then the third thing is we have to look at that transaction as not just good for you as the influencer, but it has to be good for the other person too. And I put it this way good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. And I think if we can fulfill all three of those requirements, we can feel good about how we're interacting with people to try to influence their thinking and their behavior. Yeah, the, um, the, the second one you mentioned, Brian, um, happens quite a bit with this, uh, this, this uh, you know, you might call it sales pressure where, you know, the, this deal's only good for today. The guy coming to your house selling you, you know, new vinyl siding or new windows, you know, I can only offer this today. Sorry. You know, it, it's so fake. But what would be a more naturally, uh, a more natural use of, of psychology and sales? Well, I'll go back to scarcity. Scarcity could be uh, legitimate in that moment. If that salesperson were to say, you know, Peter, um, price that I'm offering you today, I can't guarantee it for very long because, you know, there was a hurricane down in Florida. And what that means is a lot of building supplies are heading down there and price pressures may change the, the price of this. So I'm just want you to know that, that I can't guarantee this price, you know, for any extended period of time because of what may happen economically. That's being truthful. Because if you had watched the news and seen something about a hurricane or a tornado, you might be well aware of the fact that there's going to be intense pressure on builders and building supplies to get down there. That's natural use of a principle like that. Um, another example that, that could be very natural too is to talk about uh, what we call social proof. You know, if lots of people or people who are just like you happen to be doing something, well, then I want to make sure that I talk about that. And so if you're a potential insurance client, and depending on what your business is, I might be able to say, you know, Peter, here at the agency, we insure a couple dozen businesses that are really very similar to yours. And one of the things that we suggest for all of them is, and I begin to put forth a suggestion, well, you're naturally then feeling inclined to follow the lead of people who are like you, especially if you view them as successful. Okay. So um, we're familiar with the concept of persuasion, Brian. You talk about persuasion in your books. So 
persuasion is a little different. Persuasion I like to talk about is what we do in the moment to try to change how somebody thinks or behaves. Persuasion is about arranging for an audience to be receptive to the message before you ever deliver it. So in simple terms, I always like to call it setting the stage. What can you do to set the stage or create an environment that's most conducive to get someone to say yes to you? Now, I'll give you a very personal example. When, when I said that I started in insurance and my very first day I met my wife at the Travelers, when we started dating, everything was, was wonderful until later that fall. So it was about five months into dating. My old girlfriend called and it really threw me for a loop. And all of a sudden I didn't know who I wanted to be with and I was indecisive for about six months. When I finally decided that I thought I wanted to be with Jane, my wife, she told me flat out, even if you ask me out again, we're not gonna go out. So I knew I was gonna need to do something big. And what I did, I didn't know that I was using persuasion at the time, but this was all persuasion. It was her birthday in mid-May, and I had asked her, would you mind if I took you to, to dinner for your birthday? And she did agree to that. But what I did then that day was I sent her a dozen roses at work. When I showed up at her apartment, I had another dozen roses and a bottle of wine. When we went to leave for dinner, I had rented uh, or hired a Rolls Royce and a chauffeur to drive us to downtown Columbus to dinner. And we rode this glass elevator up over 30 stories, had this romantic dinner overlooking the skyline of the city, took this glass elevator back down, and in the back of the Rolls Royce, I popped the question. Now, all of that created an environment of romance. If I had asked her that day at work when she said, I'm never going to go out with you again, I'm sure she would have told me to jump in a lake. But by creating this environment, it made it much, much easier for her to ultimately say yes to me. And so what I want people to think about is whenever you're going into a situation where you're going to be interacting maybe with a, uh, an underwriter and you need to get an underwriting decision, or maybe you're interacting with a really important client and you need to get them to make some kind of change, what might you do beforehand that would create a mindset or set that stage that would make it easier for that person to receive your message and potentially say yes? That's what persuasion is all about. Okay. You also talk a lot about personality types, Brian. And, um, you know, I think, I think salespeople, uh, the, the real good ones, um, whatever business they're in, including insurance, are really good. Uh, they're intuitive with people and know how, what buttons to push or, or what questions to ask, that sort of thing. You have an acronym called DEAL. Tell us about DEAL. So there are lots of ways to strategically think about how will I use this psychology, what we call the principles of influence. And one of the ways is by considering the personality style that you're interacting with. And, and I use a four quadrant model that's similar to DISC, but I call it DEAL because we deal with people. And when you're in sales, you hope to close deals. So it makes it very memorable. And DEAL is simply driver, expressive, amiable, and logical. And, and the way that you segment that out is a driver is a person who's very task oriented, likes to be in control. An expressive is a person who likes to be in control, but is very relational, a lot more on the, they will set aside getting things done in order to have relationship with people. 
And then the amiable is a person who's not trying to control anybody or anything, and they're very relationship oriented. And then the final, the logical is somebody who is, again, task driven, but they're not like the, the driver. They're not about controlling people in situations. Their locus of control is more about self. And when you understand the personality type that you're dealing with, there are different principles that will work better with them. So for example, with a driver, the person who's not relationship oriented, they just wanna get stuff done. They wanna stay in control of the situations they're in. You don't hang your hat to do business with people that we like, because quite frankly, people who are drivers, they may not care at all about the relationship they have with you. It's just about how you can help them. So that principle, I would not spend a lot of time focusing on as I prepared for that meeting, but I sure would focus on it if I was dealing with somebody who is an expressive. And so in, in my current book, The Influencer, and the book that I wrote prior to that called Persuasive Selling, I go into detail on these different uh, personality types and what psychology is most effective when you get a handle on who you're dealing with. Okay. Um, there are certain words that salespeople can use, and you talk about these two in the book, Brian, words, the magic of words like because, but, and however. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a really interesting study when it comes to this word because by a lady, a lady named Ellen Langer, who was a professor at, at Harvard. And this study goes back a ways, back to the days when you'd go to a photocopy shop when you needed to make copies. So for your younger listeners, yes, there was a day when not every office had a photocopy machine. And during this study, what they would do is they would wait for a line to form at the copier. And then they would have somebody who's part of the experiment walk up all throughout the day to the person who was in the front of the line. And they would say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you? So just a straight ask with no reason. And when they did that, 60% of the time, people were generous and said, sure, go ahead. At another time, they would go up to the front and they would say, excuse me, I, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you because I'm in a rush? So when they added the because I'm in a rush, almost everybody, 94% said, sure, go ahead. Now, thinking it was simply because they said they were in a rush, they tried it one more time. And on this third variation, the person would go up and say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you because I need to make these copies? Now, obviously, that's a bogus reason, right? Everybody's in line to make copies. But 93% of people, virtually no difference from the, because I'm in a rush group, 93% said, sure, go ahead. Now, the social psychologists theorize it's because we are so conditioned by the word because. If your listeners think back to their childhood, if mom or dad ever said, cut the grass, empty the dishwasher, do your homework, if you ever dared to say, why, what do you think they said, Peter? Oh, I have no idea. Because I said so, right? I mean, I heard that. I'm sure now that you think of it, you probably heard your parents say it. We all heard our parents say Because that. I said so, of course. Yeah. And we didn't go, well, mom or dad, that's not a valid reason. We just did it. So the theory is we are so conditioned by the word that it's a trigger word and that we almost don't even pay attention to what comes next. Now, I'm not an advocate for giving a bogus reason, but what I tell people is when you are going to make a request of somebody, take one more breath, say because, 
give them that valid reason and you will have more people saying yes to you. The science on it is very, very clear, but most people don't do that. The things that, that I talk about <clears throat> that Cialdini popularized and, and I look at myself as a practitioner, this isn't rocket science. Everybody gets it when you start talking about it because they can think of a time where either they responded because someone did that, or maybe they go, oh, that's why people respond to me positively. I do always use the word because. What I want people to then start doing is be more thoughtful and strategic about utilizing the psychology so they can help people and they can reap the rewards of being that one who is a helper. So, so that's the word because and, and the impact that it can have. Um, the other words that you mentioned are but and however, and, and those are transitional words that depending on what we have to share, um, how we order the information can make a big difference. Now, people tend to remember what comes after the word but or however. So right. for example, if somebody, you know, if, if your spouse or my spouse says, I love you, but, okay, we don't remember the I love you. We just know the hammer is coming down after the but. So when you understand that people remember what comes after but, we need to be very thoughtful about how we present our information. So maybe somebody listening to this uh, runs an insurance company. Perhaps last year you had record sales, but you had uh, disastrous on the profit side. But you want to motivate your team in 2022. You don't go in and say, last year we killed it in sales. It was a record year, but our combined was 110 and we lost you know, $50 million. Everybody leaves on the downer. If you want them to be motivated, you go in and say, I'm going to be upfront with you. Last year was terrible on the profit side. We had 110 combined. We lost $50 million. But I'm excited because it was a record year in sales. And people start focusing on the fact that it was a record year in sales. So depending on what you want your audience to walk away thinking and feeling, you need to be very thoughtful about using a strategic word like but or however when you've got comparatives, you know, maybe positives and negatives. Yeah, that's that's a principle too. You see in media training, which we do here at our firm, uh, we call it SACO, some overriding communication objective. And the however and the but is a bridge towards your main point, the, you know, the positive side, as you say. It's just good, it's just really good communications you're talking about, Brian. Right. And most people don't go through your training or they don't read about social psychology. And so it's kind of hit or miss. You know, another example, maybe somebody listening to this is a manages a, a team. Maybe you've got somebody who joined your team and, and they do great work, but their work habits, you know, maybe they, you know, before COVID, maybe they were coming into the office late and, and people on the team were grumbling, like, why does that person get to come in late when we're always on time? You wouldn't want to have a conversation with that person that says, hey, you know, I got to give you some feedback. People are talking about you're coming in late. Uh, that needs to change, but we love you and you're doing great work. Because then the person leaves thinking, well, they love me, I'm doing great work. You want to acknowledge the great work and then say, but there's a problem. And the team is complaining because you're coming in late and that has to change. That's what you want the person focused on. So you're thoughtful about how you're communicating that information. Yeah. Well, you know, the, there's, there's this phrase we hear in insurance, Brian, called that insurance is a relationship business. And uh, to where you get to the point where you actually have a conversation, which is a lot of what we're talking about here is when you're actually interacting with people, 
um, there, there are things that have to happen to even get to that point where you can convert somebody you may know about your agency or about your company to someone where you can have a conversation with. So you get into things like brand strategy, branding, marketing, uh, digital marketing. I would imagine, I, I, not to put words in your mouth, but I, I, it feels like a lot of what you're saying can translate very well to those precursors to the conversations. Oh, absolutely. Selling, when you look at the sales cycle, there, there's no one thing that, that you or I or anybody listening to this is typically going to say or do that is going to make somebody say, absolutely, I want to do business with you. It's usually a series of yeses. And it starts with your prospecting, right? Can you get them to say yes to that first meeting? And then you've got your first meeting and your qualification and present, presentation, uh, objection handling, negotiating, closing. And then ultimately, you want to get a yes to referrals and start that cycle again. So we need to look at that and say, what is the best psychology to employ at every step throughout the sales cycle. And what you're talking about, a lot of that in the prospecting can come in the branding and the marketing. And what is it that's gonna grab somebody's attention and make them say, I wanna meet with that person when they finally maybe pick up the phone and, and try to get that first meeting. So what psychology can we employ that's gonna help move from that stage to the next and all the way through the sales cycle? Okay. Well, Brian, um, you've you've done a lot of you know coaching and training and writing books, and clearly you, you love research and um, translate that to actionable information. It sounds like you're not just passionate about about you know presenting this information, but seeing people actually implement, seeing seeing change, right? Because otherwise, it's just it's just in a book on a shelf. Um, what do you want people to do? I mean, you've written these three books. Clearly, you have a lot of, you prepare so well. I've, I've heard you in other venues speak. Um, what, what, do you, what, what can people do with this information, Brian, to really make a difference? Well, I'll step back and say, you know, to use Simon Sinek's term, you know, what is my why? My why is the professional success and the personal happiness of, of the people that I interact with. You know, whether it's putting out information on social media, or if I'm brought in to consult, coach, train, speak, whatever. I want people to, to have that eye-opening aha moment where they go, what this guy is saying makes complete sense. And the research that he's sharing gives me confidence that if I try the things he's talking about, it will make it easier for people to say yes to me. When I'm in the office, that means success. When I'm at home, it usually means less friction and more happiness. And so I would hope that people would, would recognize that the underpinning of all of our interactions with one another comes down to psychology. And a large part of the psychology is we are, throughout the entirety of our lives, trying to get people to do things for us. Clients, underwriters, vendors, we are trying to impact their thinking and their behavior. If we understand this psychology, this, this body of work that's been researched now for more than 70 years, we can do a much better job at getting to those yeses. And it doesn't mean that we have to work longer hours or spend more money on certain budgets. It's just, can we learn the psychology and then put it into practice in the things that we typically do? And we will reap the rewards of that. So I guess we should dedicate this podcast to all those psych majors out there, Brian. I'm, I, I'm, I was a minor in psych, but... Uh... 
uh, I, I should have majored because it, it's, it's so relevant. Everything you're saying makes total sense. Yeah, you know, it was, it was unfortunate, Peter, when I used to interview people and I would see psychology as their major, and that would always excite me. And I'd say, why did you choose psychology? Almost all the time it was, well, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I didn't think universities were doing a great job of, of enthusiastically saying, even if you don't go into a psych profession, what you are learning is the foundation of human interaction. You, you could be a better school teacher, a better insurance salesperson, a better leader. If you go into marketing and advertising, understanding how people think and behave is relevant for every human interaction. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the people who are good at something technical like engineering or architecture, um, the, the ones who can explain what they do and interact with others can explain those technical things uh, always seem to do better in their careers. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brian, last question. How can people find your books and how can they find you? Well, um, first of all, I would say connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I put out a lot of information. I've got a weekly newsletter. I'm constantly publishing content, podcasts I'm on, things like that. So reach out, connect with me on LinkedIn. If you don't put a personal message to say how you found me, it's a guarantee. I will come back to you and ask how you found me. Uh, that allows for us to have personal interaction. It makes social media social. So I like to get to know the people that I'm actually connected to. The other place would be my website, which is influencepeople.biz. And if people go out there, you'll see the banners on the side of the page for the books. So any of the books you'd be able to click on there and, and order from Amazon. That's typically the, the easiest route to go is through Amazon, get them in paperback, Kindle, and, and my first book, I also have in an audio version. Besides the books on, on the website, I've been blogging every week for the last 14, almost 15 years. There's just a tremendous amount of free resources out on the website too. So those are the two best places. Okay, Brian, well, thank you very much for being with us today and uh, let's stay in touch. Hey, it was my pleasure and absolutely, Peter. And thanks again to our sponsor, personalumbrella.com. This has been On Point with Peter Van Artrike, a podcast presentation of Wells Media Group.